Hey guys, how's it going? Oh yeah, good. Well, good. Welcome to the show. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Here on the Liberty Radio Network. Uh, it's uh, libertarian foreign policy stuff, mostly. Plus, you know, whatever I feel like complaining about. Uh, today on the show, Gareth Porter is going to be back. Why? Because he wrote something. And it's about Syria. Plan B and the bankruptcy of U.S. Syria policy. Uh, by the great Gareth Porter, he's going to be on to explain to us what the hell... Which can be difficult, you know? But Gareth, he's on it. And also, uh, remember the other day? Was it the other day or the other week? I think it was the other day on Monday. Oh, which, by the way, sorry for missing the show yesterday. Something came up. But remember on Monday I complained that I didn't have time to complain about central banking. And I wanted to complain about central banking. There was a thing in my notes, complain about central banking or something like that, that I had written to myself. And then it was the end of the show, and I didn't get to complain about it. Well, today I'm going to interview Mark Thornton about it. And then uh, that'll be a lot higher quality than just me complaining. It will be Mark Thornton explaining. And then you'll get it. And, you know, I guess uh, I'm kind of driven to this in a sense... I mean, whatever. It's a topic I've been interested in in my life, but I'm kind of old now, and I'm not. I don't have any money in the market anywhere, or even in a savings account or anything, really. So I'm not too concerned with you know money issues. I'm a day to day, week to week kind of a person in most ways, and uh, so it's just after I was done uh, learning about it and talking about it for uh, a decade in a row or whatever, I kind of got bored. But on Twitter, I follow a lot of people from the left and the right. I guess not as many from the right because they make me matter. But um, I follow a, you know, a lot of news sources and a, a lot of liberal journalists. And and I see uh, all day, every day, how nobody gets it that the reason the econ- the reason everybody is so angry all the time is because of the economy. And because of economic insecurity. Oh yeah, finally I got a job again, but for how long? Until everything goes to crap again. Where my country gone? And all that South Park stuff. It's the economy, stupid. I mean, I don't know. If you, uh, if the, the leftists and liberals in my uh, Twitter feed, if uh, reality was their way, then every white person just hates everyone who's not white all day. Oh, and finally they have a chance to elect a guy who's a Nazi like them. Come on, man. That's not really what it is. You gotta know better than that. I mean, yeah, right wing populist types are kind of racist, but why are they racist? Mostly because of the economy. They're afraid of Mexicans taking their jobs. They don't really hate Mexicans just for being Mexican. But they don't know how to blame the Federal Reserve. They don't know. Uh, there's a famous saying about not one man in a thousand understands the forces arrayed, uh, arrayed against them like this. 
It's the same thing with all the suicides. Is everybody racist against themselves when they blow their own brains out because their business failed, they got laid off, they can't take care of their family? It's not racism, it's despair. And it's because the government owns the bank that tells the other banks they can create money. That's what it is. Mark Thornton is going to show you. That's coming up on the show today. Um, and yeah, you know, humans, we all have our problems. We paper over our problems with prosperity. And there's no reason why on the you know, line graph of the 20th and 21st century that that stock market or the average standard of living or real wages or any of those lines should be ever be doing anything but steadily going up and up and up for everyone. So that, you know what, who cares what it is about you that's different from me because I, I can't think of anything to blame you for doing to me. So, whatever. Go to whatever church or synagogue or mosque you feel like or not. You know, just patronize my store, man, that's all. And we're cool. Anyway, so that's what it is. It's the economy. Uh, and that's why what's going on in politics is going on in politics. Okay, now, here's another thing. Rubio Ascendant. You know, I saw someone on Twitter saying, yeah, join me in being smug for saying for over a week now that Rubio is going nowhere. A week now? Come on. Rubio has obviously been going nowhere all along. The fact that the neocons and the establishment are trying to rally around Rubio just goes to show how completely bankrupt they are, to steal a word from Gareth Porter's Syria article here. That's all they got. Remember I told you this was part of what was so great about Ron Paul's campaigns back in 07 and 08 is that the conservative movement in America and the Republican Party in specific, they have no intellectual leadership at all. They are all a bunch of boobs. Their leader is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. They've got Rush Limbaugh and his clones and they got Newt Gingrich, who prances around saying profound and fundamental, fundamental and profound all the time, but never actually says anything profound or fundamental. And then they've got Ron, the brilliant genius who understands liberty, who understands history, who underst understands economics, who understands politics. Who's, who's got the unified field theory. And that was why all they could do is just smear and attack him and everything else because they couldn't attack his ideas because they got nothing and that's part of why he was able to make such inroads is because people could see that no one could really argue with what he was saying um but anyway so then as uh, jacob hilbrun wrote in i forgot what the national interest or something last week when trump came to kick in the door he found it was completely rotted through there's virtually nothing standing in his way in the republican party marco rubio with the IQ of 102, is the best guy they got. <laughs> and average idiots everywhere see themselves in him. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> he couldn't possibly be my leader. He could follow me, maybe. 
Lead me? No. Marco Rubio, the guy with the memorized talking points who doesn't even know what the words on his flashcards mean. He just says them. That guy. So that's pretty funny. And that's why I told you. Uh, this guy's going nowhere, no matter how much they try to support him. I mean, Trump could still completely sabotage himself somehow, but I don't see how. He's pretty damn Teflon. And and they don't, they don't have anybody. I mean, Ted Cruz, too, he, you know, won a couple of states yesterday. or Yeah, he won Texas and Oklahoma and Alaska, so three states yesterday. So he's still got his foothold in the race, as they say. But Ted Cruz, in the head-to-head matches, loses even to Hillary. Um, by far. Because he has identified for himself such a very narrow niche as the furthest right-wing conservative in every way, which excludes super majorities of the population and even of the D.C. establishment from uh, being able to support him. So he's uh, he's sabotaged himself already before even getting out of the bait. Out of the gate. Now the music's already playing. I gotta go to the break, but when we get back, I'm gonna finish up real quick about politics, and then we gotta talk about Iraq news, and then uh, go to Gareth Porter. So hang tight. It's the Scott Horton Show here on uh, LRN.FM. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at Audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, all Scott here. The thing is, I need you guys to help me to get these download numbers up. So do me a favor and sign up for the podcast feeds of this show. You can choose the whole show or just the interviews at iTunes and Stitcher. All the buttons you need are at the top of the right margin at scotthorton.org. The more subscribers I have, the more iTunes and Stitcher will help promote the show to new listeners. If you're a hardcore fan, brand new or from way back, please leave them customer ratings and reviews, too. Trying to get these wars ended. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. So, uh, uh, yeah, let me wrap up uh, politics stuff for the day. Obviously, yesterday was Super Tuesday. Uh, Clinton and Trump, I think both won seven states and um, something like that. Uh, Cruz got three. Rubio got one. A caucus state, Minnesota. Rigged game there somehow. How could anyone support Rubio? Jesus. Find me someone worse than Trump. Can you do that? Yes, sir. We got Marco Rubio online for you right here. Okay, good. Um, anyway, and then Hillary won, uh, except Vermont, and she won Massachusetts, at least they say. Um, real bad for Sanders there. And then, uh, oh, and he won Oklahoma. I think that's it. I forget. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter because, uh, the point is, well, there's a couple. First of all, I don't think Sanders is really running for president. Uh, I think, you know, almost in a Ron Paul way, I think he, although Ron was correct, I think Sanders was much more mistaken in thinking that he couldn't really win. 
but he could try to pull Hillary to the left a little bit, and he could keep the left inside the Democratic Party. That turnout's important, keeping them excited for a year in the lead-up to handing them all over uh, to Hillary Clinton for the general election. I think that probably seems important to him. He's said numerous times, I really like her, I think she's great, and I think she's way, way, way better than any of the Republicans and this kind of thing. He's made it very clear that that's kind of his attitude about it. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at his ground game and that kind of thing, he likes giving big speeches to big audiences. But that doesn't turn out the voters in small towns. You know, go to a college town, turn out a big crowd. It looks great. You spread your message a bit. But is that really what's going to get caucuses won and primaries won? And he's got to know that. He's run for office a hundred times or something. So I think he's basically just, at least in effect, he's just a jobber for Hillary. And I think he is pretty well aware that he's not really running to win the presidency. He's not really trying to defeat her. And what's funny is, I think that implies, at least, because if he's thinking, yeah, you know, better her than them, he's making the same mistake that the rest of the Democratic voters are making. And that is in thinking that she's the stronger candidate to beat Trump. She is not. And first of all, just look at the poll numbers. The poll numbers have it where his Bernie Sanders' negatives are way low. His positives are high. Everybody likes him, even if they disagree with him. Seems like a nice guy. That kind of thing. Hillary's negatives uh, are the worst in the whole world compared only to Trump. And yet Trump has the ability to turn that around in a way that she does not. And will not. And her negatives have been stuck. Well, hell, I had it here in the J.J. Goldberg article. He has it in the forward today. Oh, here, I had it highlighted. Um, Hillary Clinton, um, a 42 to 55 percent favorable, unfavorable rating. She has a, I thought it was stuck at 45 her whole life long, a 55 percent unfavorable rating. And then now again, Trump's is 60, but that's only so far. The general hasn't started yet. He has not even begun to make mincemeat of this woman and he will. Hey, no, I read this blog yesterday. No, I, it was a YouTube video by a liberal activist who, you know, I don't think that he was like very strongly anti-Hillary and pro-Bernie. I did not get that, you know, from him. But he was saying that Trump's going to destroy her. And, and oh, and I meant to say, and second of all, just look at the poll numbers in the head-to-head matches. Bernie does way better against Trump than Hillary Clinton does. And... Um, and so that's what this guy was pointing out. And his narrative was, well, you know, uh, that, uh, Donald Trump is going to throw Monica Lewinsky and Benghazi and Whitewater and kind of these pseudo scandals at Hillary, but he's going to make them stick. He's going to really use them against her and that kind of thing. And I was thinking, yeah, you're right, but it's a lot worse than that. Because he's going to use her real-ass scandals against her, too. Not Monica Lewinsky, Juanita Broderick, who Bill Clinton savagely raped and bit on the face, who has a very credible story to tell and witnesses that corroborate at least the aftermath. I mean, and the immediate aftermath. He's going to use not just Benghazi, but the Libya War, which she owns 
as the New York Times just showed over the weekend in a massive two-part study on the issue. He's going to destroy her. He's going to be to the left of her, and she's going to be the right-wing warmonger, and he's going to be to the left of her painting her as Dick Cheney on Iraq, Libya, and Syria. And don't you remember, it was just six weeks ago, or eight or something, I'm guessing, that Donald Trump said Hillary Clinton created ISIS. And he's not stuck to the Republican Party talking point that, yeah, because she and Obama got out of Iraq like in the deal. Uh Uh-uh. He's blaming her for overthrowing Gaddafi and trying to overthrow Assad. And he's been saying about the rebels in Syria, you don't know who these people are that you're backing. You don't know who they are. And she created ISIS is just the second half of that sentence. He just hadn't put them, the two of them together yet because he hasn't been unleashed against her yet. But guys, Brad Hoff was on the show. We've got the DIA document from 2012 where she's been warned, man, that overthrowing Assad means creating or even backing the rebels against him means creating an Islamic state in eastern Syria and dangerously possibly even western Iraq. And it was a few months after that that she put it in the New York Times after she uh, resigned at the end of the first term that, damn it, she and Petraeus tried to get Obama to double down on the Syria war and he just wouldn't do it enough. So forget land deals from Arkansas. If he brings up Whitewater, it'll just be, look, there's a pattern here going back decades where this lady breaks laws. Oh, and then the other uh, fake example of a scandal, he said, was the email scandal. Well, you know what? I wasn't so sure about how much anyone could really make out of this, but then I read Peter Van Buren on the blog at antiwar.com this morning, and he's going to be on the show to talk about tomorrow, I hope. And it's about how, yeah, the reason those files aren't marked classified is because they were manipulated to no longer show classification. That's why they match other files that do have classified markings. It's not that... This is all being retroactively classified. It was classified stuff that they were, you know, breaking the chain and removing the uh, classified markings in order to send them to her unclassified computer. So there is a big deal there. But never mind that. All the bribery to her foundation and all the deals she made as Secretary of State to sell weapons to the Saudis and all of that. Trump is going to nuke her out of the water. The Democrats think she's the strong one to oppose Trump? They're insane. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, Al Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darrenscoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. Darrenscoffee.com. Hey, I'm Scott. Oh, headphones on. 
It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Of course, on the line, I got the great Gareth Porter, as is often my want. Middle East Eye, that's where he's writing this time, Middle East Eye. And we're running it at antiwar.com, of course. Plan B and the bankruptcy of U.S. Syria policy. Welcome back to the show, Gareth. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Scott. People should buy your book, Manufactured Crisis, The Truth Behind the Iran Nuclear Scare. Don't you agree? I agree. I agree. I think it would be very instructional. <laughs> Instructive. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, that's called uh, Manufactured Crisis, y'all. I, I think you should read it, too. Um, yeah. So here's the thing, man. Before we get into the Plan B and all this and that, I first, what about this ceasefire, man? It's working a little better than you thought, or no? It is working, it appears better than I anticipated. Um, although, you know, I, I certainly felt that there was a, it's a, only a, Wednesday, you know, right. And, and, and there's a, there's a degree of, of inherent uncertainty in the situation because you're dealing with dozens of armed groups with varying degrees of, uh, you know, uh, affiliation with, uh, or affinity for, uh, Al-Qaeda's, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda's group in, in Syria, Al-Nusra Front, um, some of which uh, might be more interested in uh, taking this opportunity to, uh, to make a decision than others. But, um, but I, I definitely didn't anticipate that, that this would, um, would stop much fighting outside, uh, you know, the, the areas that are that are not directly connected with the northern Syria front. Um, in other words, I felt that um, you know we know that that the, the bombing um, is going to be resumed if it hasn't already been. I, I, you know, it has been resumed already uh, in northwest uh, Syria in in Aleppo and Idlib provinces. And, uh, so, so I didn't anticipate there was going to be much of any change in the, in the situation there. Uh, now apparently, you know, uh, it's, it's not clear exactly what's going on, but, but there is, uh, but there's less fighting than, than, you know, one would have thought. All right. Now, so here's one thing that I still don't understand is, um, and I, we talked about this a little bit before, but I guess I don't really remember what you said about it. Um, I can understand how the Russians, the Iranians, the Assad government, uh, Hezbollah, they can come to a consensus that, hey, Putin's government has decided we're doing the ceasefire thing, everybody, and so they pretty much all go along with that. I even read a thing that said the Iranians were leaving. Um, but then, so, okay, that all makes perfect sense to me. But then, so, how easy is it? Uh, is it now apparent that it's easier than I would have thought or that you would have expected for the CIA or, or maybe for America to have Saudi have Arar al-Sham turn it off, at least for a little while, and the other various, you know, so-called mythical moderate groups that they support? Because I always thought that, yeah, sure, you can give these guys guns and money, but you can't tell them when to stop fighting, can you? But apparently they can, to a degree. Yeah, I mean, um, there's several, you know, there's several different aspects of the question that have to be looked at um and you know one of them is uh is just you know how far the writ of of al nusra front goes in terms of of these groups um 
Arar al-Sham, as I said, said in my piece, certainly uh, has up to now uh, been so closely uh, aligned with and cooperating with uh, Al-Nusra Front that uh, that they would be following the same line. They have followed the same line politically, uh, denouncing the uh, the ceasefire. But, um, you know, I mean, we just don't know enough about the other groups um, and what their calculus is at this point. And uh, and also, you know, whether whether they are, in fact, um, being allowed by Al-Nusra Front to see what happens, uh, how long this this could last, you know, we're, you know, just too many uncertainties for me to give a very good answer. I'm sorry. I, you yeah. know, I, I can't do any better than that. Yeah. No, I got you. That's all right. Um, all right. And then, uh, the other thing is, um, I guess I wanted to accentuate this point in, before we go on to the, of the plan B stuff in your, in your article here, really. Um, this point from, uh, Reuters. And you know what? This was highlighted, I guess, in a Washington Post piece as well. And, you know, these are rare little gems that we got to take note of when they surface where they really basically, you know, come out and admit that the Americans were pushing for and what was delaying the deal was they were trying to get the Russians to agree to not bomb al-Nusra. And then finally, America gave in on that. Absolutely. This is a point that I emphasize in my piece that uh, that this was indeed the U.S. strategy uh, this was this is what Kerry wanted, that the Russians would agree not to bomb Al Nusra Front. I think the language was until the groups are sorted out, <laughs> mm-hmm. quote unquote. Uh, Which is funny because you know you know they could have said that exact same thing the other way and just said, please don't bomb any of our you know uh, Arar al Sham or any of these other so-called mythical moderate groups as long as they're near Al Nusra. But they went ahead and went for it and said, don't target Al Nusra. And, right. and, and although they finally backed down from that, but but that fact underlines the, the the reality that all across northern Syria, northwest Syria, in fact, the the U.S. supported groups are indeed uh, commingled with Al Nusra Front troops. It was a fact that the U.S. knew perfectly well and could not, uh, you know, really deny in their discussions with the Russians. Right. I mean, they can lie to us all day, but when it comes to actually negotiating with the Russians who aren't putting up with the pretense, what are they supposed to do? (laughs) Right. Exactly. And and in the end, of course, uh, Kerry gave in and said, "Okay, uh, you have the right to go ahead and and bomb the uh, sites where, you know, these troops will be uh, commingled. And uh, as I point out in my piece, I mean, that um, <laughs> that decision then was followed immediately by the most interesting. Well, I, I, I guess I didn't really get into this in the piece. But <laughs> what what I find so interesting is that it was at that point that the news media began to report for the first time that indeed uh, the the U.S. supported uh, military uh, organizations fighting the Assad regime were indeed commingled with uh, Al-Nusra Front troops. And it was all over the media after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the signal was obviously uh, given. The, the, the dog whistle was blown uh, that uh, it was okay to report this now. And why is that? Well, I'm guessing that uh, John Kerry 
felt that it was less embarrassing uh, to um, uh, have it be known that this was the reason that uh, the, the the agreement was reached that the Russians could go ahead with that because there was no denying that in fact these groups are um, so closely uh, uh, you know located co-located with Al Nusra Front troops. Uh- but that being said, I mean, uh, the Russians really haven't been bombing them, though, right? Well, yeah, again, uh, that that does appear to be the case. They they appear to have uh, decided to to wait a bit longer. I mean, I, I can't believe that it's going to last much longer. But, uh, you know, yeah. that that is the initial indication. Yeah. All right, and now I just want to say for the footnote there, since I mentioned the Reuters piece, it's Syrian opposition says temporary truce possible, but deal seems far off. It's from the 20th, but just has that footnote in there. Yeah. Um, all right, now, uh, well, we're about out of time for this segment, Gareth. So let me just mention this uh, important news story that I was reading this morning about the Mosul Dam. And there's been quite a few stories about this, and I've been ignoring it. But the one in The Guardian makes it really clear that they can't open the damn door at all. And so the pressure behind the dam is just building up and up and up and up and up. And then we already know, I think, about uh, the bad rockets based on and the rest of it. And they're saying millions of lives are at stake. And according to the Guardian piece, it sounds like a pretty serious thing. That's in uh, what's now Eastern Islamic State. But anyway, we'll be right back with Gareth Porter on his new Middle East eyepiece right after this. Hey, Al, hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson, Freedom and Security. The Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, The Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Anyway, yeah, sorry for that little diversion there, but I think maybe no that's problem. important, that Mosul Dam thing. Did you have a comment on the Mosul Dam thing there, Gary? Well, I saw the same story, and it, it is indeed extremely, uh, it seems like an extremely dangerous situation. Um, you know, the, the, the terrible cost of uh, such a uh, you know an, a, a development of, as is is contemplated here as a possibility. I mean, it's almost beyond um, belief. I mean, uh, unimaginable. But it but it could happen apparently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I have no way to verify how many you know cubic feet of water we're really talking about here or whatever. But the way they put it is that Mosul, Samara, and Baghdad could be completely flooded. A million people. An entire George W. Bush, you know, half a genocide worth of people could be killed, I guess, in a day or a week from the collapse of this dam. And and again, it's the the doors are jammed, whatever they call them. The gates where you let out a little bit of water are jammed shut. And here comes the snow melt. And yeah, oh, man, very frightening. All right. Well, so we'll see about that. Um, 
All right. So anyway, back to your story here. Uh, it's the heroic Gareth Porter, everybody. Middle East Eye is uh, where he's writing here, uh, MiddleEastEye.net, and it's at Antiwar.com today, of course, as well. Plan B and the bankruptcy of U.S.-Syria policy. And uh, you're talking about uh, John Kerry here. Something unfortunate about us is we have John Kerry for a Secretary of State. And... Um, and in, uh, you're referring to a few different sources here, uh, CBS, CNN, some congressional testimony, trying to parse what it is that Kerry is getting at when he talks about further intervention by the U.S. in the region, Gareth. Right. And, and you know, there are two different ways that this uh, mention of uh, the so-called Plan B has been uh, interpreted. I mean, the, the more alarmist view is that... Um, uh, you know, something's in the wind here involving uh, new uh, escalation of military involvement by the United States and its allies. Uh, the the other view, which I put forward in this uh, in this article, however, is uh, I think more specifically uh, one that is supported by a lot of details that we now know about uh, what was going on here. And that is that what's really happening is that within the Obama administration, there is the usual catfight uh, between people who want to do more to get involved in uh, Syria somehow, militarily, paramilitarily, and those people who want to keep the reins on. Uh, this has been a case, of course, ever since uh, 2011, 2012. Um, and it's still the case today. Um, and, you know, it appears very much as though Kerry himself is the guy who's pushing for doing more. Um, and it's the Pentagon and the military leadership who are very much um, uh, skeptical about uh, that idea. Right. Uh, that's why you get a CNN report uh, where a senior official clearly talking to um, – uh, Barbara Starr, the Pentagon correspondent, and therefore presumably at the Pentagon, is basically pouring cold water on this idea that there uh, that there is a military option uh, that that could be put into effect uh, to try to do something about the military reverses that have taken place in northern Syria in recent uh, in recent weeks. Um, and at the same time, you have um, Kerry going out of his way to suggest that uh, he has been a supporter of strong uh, U.S. Um, uh, support for the uh, anti-Assad forces um, and uh, intimating that, you know, the, that what he, you know, what he's talking about here, Plan B, would be more confrontational, would be uh, military-like, um, some someone sounding very much like Kerry, let's put it that way, was was talking about being more confrontational. And, and, and of course, Kerry's the one who has the personal uh, political interest here in uh, looking better by, by having the United States uh, appear to be more uh, supportive of the um, of the anti-Assad forces, because he's the one who's in the limelight, and he's the one who's been trying to push for negotiations. Uh, so it, it looks to me like a classic case of internal uh, struggle over policy and posturing, particularly by Kerry, uh, to, to try to make it look like there's something that's going to be done when, in fact, 
it doesn't look uh, at all realistic that there are there are options that could be uh, that could be uh, actually carried out here that would make a difference. Yeah. Well, you know, we can hope that they're coming to that conclusion that they really do see how stuck they are. All their all their various bluffs have been called, and you know, it's getting to the point. It, it's hard to really characterize this in context, but it's getting really to the point of absurdity when you have Pentagon-backed Kurdish forces fighting CIA-backed uh, jihadists in the middle of this thing. At some point, I mean, doesn't that mean that there was a fight in a hallway somewhere in D.C. about this or well, something? Do you know what I mean? I, I think it does mean that there are uh, different interests at play and that a policy that was put into effect um, – some time ago, you know, to support the the YPG uh, against uh, you know the ISIS and in some cases as well against Al Nusra Front and its allies, what uh, was put into effect, and now um, you know that has become a problem that uh, the Turks, of course, are are contesting very strongly, uh, and uh, you know I think they're they're. Obviously, other people within the administration who don't like that um, and who are trying to get it changed, um, or, or at least we know there are people outside the administration who don't like it and are trying to get it changed. Uh, it is more speculative whether there's there's an effort now to uh, uh, to try to change that. I'm not sure about that at all. But but I think the the point that really uh, needs to be emphasized here is that that the three options that were mentioned in my article are are options which this unnamed Pentagon official uh laid out on the table put put out and and talked about to uh, CNN mm-hmm. uh and this is extremely unusual when you have a, a sort of a crisis situation or a crisis atmosphere uh in in a foreign country where the United States is is at least partially involved militarily uh, that that you have somebody saying, oh, we're we're talking about uh, new options here to do something about this situation, and here's somebody at the Pentagon saying, okay, here's the three options that we're talking about in detail, and essentially, uh, you know, these three options are are simply not, uh, are, you know, th- there's no realistic possibility that they could be adopted and be effective, and uh, and I think that's why the the Pentagon officials really uh, talking about them in detail. I mean, specifically the no-fly zone, he described as uh, not off the table but on the edge of the table, uh, meaning I think that uh, somebody is still advocating it. Maybe John Kerry himself, um, because he did advocate it in the past. And uh, you know, it's there's not much chance that it's going to be accepted because the the Pentagon's still opposed to it. Uh, basically putting more special forces in, that's not really a viable option. As well, far stop, as... stop at the no-fly zone for a sec there real quick. Um, yeah. Are they just talking about Assad's helicopters and his barrel bombs, or they're saying, yeah, let's shoot down MiGs? Well, if you actually, yeah, if you're serious about doing a no-fly zone, then you're talking about shooting down MiGs. How else would you do it? I mean, first of all, before you start shooting down the MiGs, you have to uh, target the the entire Russian um, radar uh, system in in Syria. Uh, well, and I'm only clarifying because that's what Chris Christie said. But Hillary Clinton, when she says no fly zone, she she at least pretends that she's not talking about war with Russia over Syria, is she? Right? Or does, well, I mean, when she, she when, when she of course began to talk about no fly zone, that was before the Russians were in there. 
And, oh, right. Uh, but she ain't stopped yet. But she hadn't acknowledged that that's who she'd have to be shooting. She has not acknowledged it, but it's really stupid yeah. of her to think that she could get away with it <laughs> without acknowledging that. I mean, you know, yeah. that's that's I mean, if I were Bernie Sanders, I'd be roasting her over that. Right. OK. And then I'm sorry. And then increase support for the mythical moderates. Yeah, I mean, here here is uh, the situation there. I mean, how are you going to do it? I mean, are, are you going to airdrop, uh, have U.S. planes airdrop this? Well, that means that you're going to encounter Russian planes because you're going to go into the areas where the troops uh, that we want to support are located, and that's where the Russians are operating. So you have the same problem, essentially. Right. All right, well, so, and then was that all three, or was there one more? Well, uh, th- I was going to mention the special forces uh, option, but you oh, know, right, that, in with it. Yeah, go ahead. That that's simply a problem of uh, you know sending sp- sending uh, special forces into Idlib or uh, Aleppo province uh, provinces uh, to to fight uh, Al Nusra Front uh, or I'm sorry, not to fight Al Nusra Front, but to, to fight to uh, the Assad forces in Hezbollah. Uh, that, that's pretty, uh, far reaching. I mean, that's, again, that's this is, this is, you're talking about, this is what the general said to Barbara Starr was, look, Barbara, what are we going to do? Put special forces in with the Kurds, but then expand their mandate from fight Islamic state to fight everybody too. I mean, that would be the implication. He didn't really, you know, go into it in that detail, but that's the implication of, of putting more special forces in there in order to try to reverse, uh, somehow how the the uh, military uh, victories that uh, or, or progress at least that uh, the Russians and their allies have have made in in northern Syria. Right. Yeah. What a damn mess. All right. Uh, well, I'll let you go, man. But uh, thanks very much for staying on and uh, doing the show with me, Gareth. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again. All right, y'all. We'll be right back with Mark Thornton after this. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, Al Scott here. The Ciceronian Society is an interdisciplinary group devoted to the timeless themes of place, tradition, and things divine. You are invited to their sixth annual conference to hear two days of papers on important thinkers, from Plato and St. Benedict to John Locke, Hayek, and Henry David Thoreau. The conference is March 10th through 12th in historic Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, less than two hours from D.C. and Baltimore. Register at CiceronianSociety.com. Oh, hey, man, you still there? Yeah. Hey, let me ask you another thing real quick, and we'll paste it on the end of that. Yeah. Hey, Gareth, let me ask you one more thing. Um, they say they uh, there are all these different stories about uh, Bin Laden's documents uh, that they released, and and uh, some of them even seem to be spinning toward the, see, Al-Qaeda really is more moderate than the Islamic State. Never mind 9-11 or any of that stuff. But the Islamic State, Bin Laden, you know, I don't know if they're really trying to spin it that way, but it seemed like they were trying to create some room for that. But I haven't seen that. There's a new story out what, today or. Well, there are a lot there. Are, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you just search Bin Laden in your Google News, you'll get a bunch of stories. And a lot of them are highlighting his warnings about Zarqawi's brutality. And that's not what he wanted, which, of course, is not really new news, but it's just right. um, 
Yeah, you know, it, it could be like useful for them. But here's what's more interesting about it to me. It seems like, um, and this is um, Nancy Youssef's article in the Daily Beast, and I really like her. And yeah. she says, you know, bin Laden warned Islamic State would fail. And this is the whole near enemy, far enemy fight. We got to, they argued, bleed the American empire all the way to bankruptcy and force them all the way out of the region first. And only then can we create an Islamic State and overthrow, you know, Egypt and Saudi and have our way. Otherwise, the Americans will destroy it because they got the money and the bombs. Let's face it. So far enemy first. And then this is, you know, the doctrinal fight split other than the personality split with the Islamic State, right. is that it's too right. soon, you're supposed to just keep fighting for now, uh, right. which is what Ghilani right. is doing. That, so, of course, yeah, that goes against any effort to sort of uh, prettify al-Qaeda and, and al-Nusra Front. I yeah, think. yeah but, I would think so. Well, and But the point I'm arguing is really besides all that. The, the real thing I'm getting at is if America allied with the Kurds, and the Iranians, the Shiite militias like the Badr Brigade and all that, eventually do end up uh, sacking Mosul, sacking um, Fallujah and uh, Raqqa, and and driving these guys out of power. Don't they then just prove Bin Laden and Zawahiri right that nope, you got to keep attacking the Americans? And don't we just take what is what Baghdadi, in a sense, has made a very local issue out of America's intervention there? He's turned all that attention kind of inward, and it seems like America's strategy is actually to break that apart and turn all those forces that he's arrayed back well, against be, us that, again. That would be a yeah, that would be the logical implication. Should that happen? Yeah, that that would that would present the uh, uh, the uh, a, a new a new um, situation in that debate. But of course. <laughs> If that happens, then the two sides would no longer be debating because one side wouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> well, or they wouldn't have power anymore, but they would still just they'd just be Al Qaeda in Iraq again. It would is, be they would be present elsewhere. You're right. Of course. Yeah, and they would have all that much more motive to attack Americans. Is the yeah, point I'm making? That's true. Yeah. And maybe at some point we should just call it off. That's all. <laughs> all right. I was just wondering uh, what what you thought about that. Thanks yeah, very I, much, Gene. Appreciate. I think it. that's right. I think you're right. That's a good point. Okay. Cool. Well, appreciate. Thanks. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Well, my dang Mozilla froze up on me, so I can't really read you Mark Thornton's bio. I'll tell you what I know off the top of my head, though. He's a senior fellow. Fellow. <coughs> fellig? I don't know what that is. A senior fellow at the Ludwig. Oh, that's what happened there. I was thinking ahead. You got to say Ludwig right, and it got all mixed up in my neurons. 
He's a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, and he's really good on the bubbles. Welcome back to the show, Mark. How are you? Hey, Scott. It's great to be back on the show, and Mises Institute is just fine. Uh, oh, as, long as, pe- as long as people get to M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G, we don't care. That's what I'm trying to say. And you know what, guys? You'll find about a hundred zillion pages of written text there of all the great Austrian economists for free. I mean, so much to study. If if we did a whole two-hour show, I don't think Mark could get through just describing what all you could find there. I mean, seriously. Well, there's, and there's a lot of audio and video that you can download to your iPods and, you know, take it with you. There you go, too. Absolutely. And And... A lot of it in Jeff Riggenbach's voice, which don't hurt. Yeah, he's he's got the greatest voice. Um, he keeps you going, but you feel comfortable listening. It's just wonderful. Yeah, it is. He's great. All right, so let's talk about the bubbles because, uh, you know, I see everybody kind of uh, pointing at tangential-type issues, and they're avoiding that truth that was, I think this is the only way to really put this, a truth so simple that James Carville was able to understand it and distill it for the Democrats, uh, leading to their victory in 1992. It's the economy, stupid. People are upset because even if they got a job, they ain't sure how long it's going to last like that. And that's why people are rallying around Trump and rallying around, you know, well, to the degree they are, Sanders on the left side. Um, although for whatever reason they think that uh, she, that Hillary is a better bet. But anyway, um, it's it's the uncertainty that people feel that the economic rug is about to be pulled out from under them again, and that's assuming that they're even able to get back up from the last time when they broke their hip, you know, so to speak. So I was wondering if you could explain to the people, and I know it's a difficult subject and it's hard to do, you know, on radio in short amounts of time, but could you explain to the people again how it is that fractional reserve banking and particularly backed by the government central bank, the Federal Reserve, is responsible for those artificial booms that lead to these very real busts? Well, Scott, we have a very artificial money and banking system. The United States grew to become an economic superpower on the back of a gold standard and a competitive banking system where banks just couldn't willy-nilly loan out money because they would be afraid that their depositors would come and ask for the money and they would end up being bankrupt. Since the Federal Reserve in 1913 and going off the gold standard in 1935, we've had an artificial monetary system And in 1971, Nixon took us off the last vestige of the gold standard. And since then, our money is just simply paper. It's a it's just a paper document. It doesn't there's nothing backing it. There's no gold backing. Uh, There's no promises to redeem it in anything real and true. And so the bankers and the central bankers have been using that system to their own advantage to favor the big banks and to monetize the national debt and to create these boom-bust cycles in the economy. So it's basically the fact that we have this artificial and government-controlled industry known as money and banking that has caused all of these problems and have uh, really caused a very negative effect on Americans, on savings, 
and on productivity and therefore on wage rates and jobs. And so they're really all to blame for not just the erosion of the middle class and the boom-bust cycle, but they're also responsible for the tremendous uh, increase in economic inequality in the United States. When we were on the gold standard, we became more and more equal, uh, economically speaking, in terms of income and wealth. And since going off the gold standard in 1971, we've seen a tremendous upshoot in economic inequality where the wealthy and the rich hedge fund managers and so forth are becoming multi-billionaires while the middle class is stagnated and where uh, real wages in the economy have actually been declining for many years. So it's all uh, the Fed's fault, basically. Mm. All right. Now, but uh, I learned in seventh grade that it was the wild excesses of free market laissez-faire capitalism that caused the business cycle, these booms and busts, and that that's why we need a central bank in order to smooth them booms and busts out. So apparently you have it all backwards. No, I'm afraid not. Well, if you look at it, you know, if you were an historian and you just looked at the economy and you just saw the boom, well, what you see is entrepreneurs and investors going hog wild, investing and building and creating all this stuff. And then, of course, they in the bus, they go bankrupt. So you, you, if you were just looking at it, you would see that capitalists were the prime movers in both the boom and the bus. But we have to ask ourselves, well, what causes that? Why would people get obsessively optimistic at one period altogether and then incredibly pessimistic just a, sh- a few years later? And that's what the Austrian theory of the business cycle and a proper understanding of the Fed, Federal Reserve, and paper money is, is that the Fed, um, by printing money and by reducing interest rates, they cause the boom. They encourage investors to borrow too much money and to get involved in projects that are just not going to be profitable. And so, yes, if you look at the economy from a historical or a historian's point of view, you would see capitalists being prime movers, but when you ask yourself why would they all do this, uh, you know, at the same time, um, then you get behind the scenes and you see what the Federal Reserve is doing is manipulating interest rates and the money supply and the availability of credit, and so they're the ultimate cause. And of course, ultimately, if people are investing too much money and in projects that aren't going to be profitable then ultimately that's going to have to collapse. All right. But so I guess, uh, well, I'm trying to imagine, you know, the alternative arguments as best I can. You can't just have the economy grow and grow and grow and the money supply never grow. The money supply has to grow with the economy. And so maybe your problem is, is they just go overboard on the margin and that's what causes the bubble. But otherwise, uh, what terrible catastrophe might befall us if the money supply did not expand along with whatever other growth and new inventions and new labor forces and what have you in the economy? Well, that's a great great question, Scott. If you look at the statistics of the money supply in American history, what you see is from the very beginning of America to the founding of the Fed, the money supply grew very steadily. Um, it never really contracted very much, but it grew at 1% to 2% 
as gold entered the monetary system, uh, the economic growth in America was greater than that. And so there were more jobs, there were more people working, there were more manufacturing, um, you know, all sorts of things expanded tremendously on the gold standard. But what would happen is that simply prices in the economy would fall to compensate for the fact that GDP is greater than the increase in the money supply. So in a normal, um, non-artificial economy on a gold standard, uh, the money supply does increase, uh, but prices gently fall to compensate for that. So there's plenty of money to go around to pay wages, to buy iron and steel, to operate industries and so forth. It's only when you get um, in, it, it's only when you get to the Federal Reserve um, that you see wild swings um, in the money supply, uh, particularly so after 1971. And, of course, since the financial crisis, the increase in the money supply has been enormous. Right. And so, and, you know, we've just seen it uh, over the last few years. You can't really deny it. You see a boom and a bust about every, uh, well, what, 10 years or so? Or or actually, I guess sometimes, what, eight years, something like that? Um uh, from 92, that was how George Bush Sr. got defeated. That was why It's the Economy Stupid uh, was such a great slogan was because we were in what was then called the Bush Recession, uh, which was what, consequence of all the inflation for the first Gulf War or from before that? Right. And, you know, and then, of the... course, there's the dot-com bust of the end of the 20, 20th century and then the, the mortgage crisis of 2008 and wherever we are on the cycle now, I don't know. Well, you know, when we teach the business cycle, we first start off by drawing a graph where we show the economy going up and down in a regular formation. But in the real world, we can't time the the timing or the magnitude of what the business cycle is going to do. So if the Fed uh, puts a check on credit early in the cycle, then the cycle is going to be shorter and it's going to be have less magnitude to it. If the Fed gets out of hand and continues to hand out low-interest uh, money to the big banks, then the boom can be extremely large, and the bust can be particularly severe. So Austrians teach that you cannot time uh, a business cycle precisely the way mainstream Keynesians would, um, and as, as to where we are right now, well, we're, we're really in uncharted territories because they really never let up, let the excesses of the housing bubble completely deflate. Um, and then they went upon a massive uh, interventionist policy in terms of uh, zero interest rate, quantitative easing um, in, to infinity, operation twist, bailouts, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that we have um, an economy right now where uh, much of the economy is suffering with no growth, stagnation, and unemployment, no jobs, and then other parts of the economy that are just booming. And, of course, the stock market's been booming, the bond market had been booming, shale oil had been booming, and now it's collapsed. Um, and in Auburn, we've got enormous construction projects everywhere. It's just unbelievable uh, that... The, you know, half of the city has been torn down and is being rebuilt. 
um, in Little Auburn, Alabama, and we're getting record height uh, buildings for our area that are currently under construction. We've got two enormous construction cranes in downtown Auburn, the likes of which have never been seen here before. So the Fed has created this monster out there where the economy has... Uh, Give me a good upper- metaphor for the the amount of bank credit expansion between 2000 and 2008 versus from 2009 through right now. Are we talking about a minnow and a whale, or we're talking about you know Earth and Jupiter or something? Tell me. Uh, Earth and Jupiter is, is probably a good good analogy. Jeez, that, that's pretty uh, big, man. Yeah, it's it's pretty big, and the earth and the Earth is solid. I mean, we could have um, recovered from what the Fed had done from 2001 to 2007. We were following a normal correction uh, in recovery. Uh, phase in 2007, and then the Fed stepped in with uh, policies which had never been tried before uh, and have since uh, gone into policies that have rarely been talked about ever before. And now we're talking about negative interest rates, and some company countries have uh, implemented negative interest rates, and nobody had ever discussed negative interest rates except a guy a uh, hundred years ago named Silvio Gazelle, who was considered a, a, not even an economist, a monetary crackpot, although John Maynard Keynes mentioned his name in the general theory, and so he's become somewhat famous, but his ideas were always considered crazy. And so the monetary policy since 2007 uh, has prevented the recovery and has uh, blown up an enormous bubble uh, corporate balance sheets are more leveraged and, and uncertain now more than ever. And so I think Jupiter being sort of a gaseous type planet and an enormous bubble-like structure, I think that makes for a great analogy to where we are today um, with these enormous bubbles, with these inflated balance sheets, uh, with sa- savings in the American economy stagnating and contracting, we're eating our seed corn, and it's an enormous, enormous problem. It sounds like the good, the only good news is there's still so many bad bets being made from the last bubble that are still being liquidated that there's still all this deflationary pressure on the economy, kind of counteracting all the expansion of money, right? Right, and deflation is the way in which an economy corrects itself. Krugman uh, and the uh, Keynesians are dreadfully fearful of deflation, but it, that's what makes an economy correct itself. And so you see asset prices fall, capital prices fall, land prices fall uh, tremendously. You see labor uh, reduced wages and a greater availability of labor but consumer prices don't go down very much. They go down, you know, a few percent. Um, and as a result, entrepreneurs can look at that environment and see that all sorts of capital is really, really cheap. Labor is cheaper and abundant. Uh, and you can put all that together and make consumer goods for a profit. And so deflation is really the way in which a free market economy corrects itself. 
And, and then, but that's so right now that's saving us in a sense from how big the bubble could be, right? Is that you still have everybody struggling. There's nobody really dying to take out a loan to go into business because he doesn't have any customers. Well, that's, that's true. Um, you know, the, uh, and it depends on where the deflation is really. Uh, if, if it occurs in consumer prices, which it does, uh, on, I should say here, Mark, too, that I'm kind of going off of my, you know, very uneducated imagination here. I'm basically picturing Bernanke and Yellen pouring dollars like liquid into a black hole where, yeah, they're inflating and inflating and inflating, but it's just basically being destroyed on impact or wherever it goes. Nobody knows. That's right. And, you know, a lot of this money uh, that the Fed has created, what they've done is that they're simply printing up money electronically giving it to the big banks in exchange for government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And so a lot of that money is not really getting into uh, the real economy. It's just the, the basically the Fed uh, bailing out the big banks, number one. Uh, number two, the Fed taking over the mortgage market by buying up an enormous percentage of all mortgages through mortgage-backed securities. And the third thing it's doing is it's monetizing the national debt. It's buying government bonds. So the government sells bonds to banks, and then the Fed buys the bonds um, from the big banks. And so the, the banks make a little profit there. Uh, the Treasury gets uh, money for as little as two-tenths of 1% interest. Uh, and so it never has to consider uh, spending cutbacks. It doesn't have to reevaluate our foreign policy of throwing away trillions of dollars overseas in, in wars that cannot be won uh, from, from enemies that cannot be uh, beaten. And we're just throwing money uh, by the truckload, literally, uh, into that black hole uh, because the, the gov- our government doesn't have to worry about uh, spending cutbacks. It can just spend as much as it wants uh, on anything it wants, knowing that the Fed will come to the rescue and simply through this uh, little trick game they play between the Treasury, the banks, and the Fed, they just take that all that money off of the books. Right. All right. Now, listen, I know you got to go, uh, but let me ask you one thing real quick. Uh, what would you recommend to people who are new to this? What's you know, one good single, hopefully somewhat short read on business cycle theory that you would have them look at? Well, the first thing they should read is Murray Rothbard's What Has Government Done to Our Money? Uh, Joseph Salerno's book, uh, Money uh, Sound and Unsound, is a wonderful collection, although I recommend people start at the fifth section of that book and work their way towards uh, the front of the book. It makes it a better read for those who are just initiated into the process. And we have, you know, just an unbelievable material. Check out our blog every day if you want the best commentary. And keep your heads down, because between now and the election, I predict that ISIL and other terrorist groups are going to be hitting the United States and our allies around the world uh, in order to drive the political, the presidential race, uh, into a more warlike uh, tune. Well, and they'll have plenty of help from people over here, too, <laughs> in accomplishing that same goal. 
I know it. Yep. All right. Hey, thanks again for coming on the show, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. All right, y'all. That's the great Mark Thornton. He is senior fellow at the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S, Mises Institute, uh, Mises.org. And uh, he's the book review editor of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. He's uh, the author of The Economics of Prohibition, Tariffs, Blockades, and Inflation, The Economics of the Civil War, The Quotable Mises, The Bastiat Collection, An Essay on Economic Theory, and The Bastiat Reader, obviously, editor of some of those. Anyway, back in a minute. No, wait, we're still on. I forgot. Ain't quite time. I got a few minutes. Uh, I got a, a minute or so. I just want to mention this real quick. Um, where the hell did it go? Aha. From RussiaInsider.com. Obama's ex-Secretary of Defense, Chuck Hagel, former Republican senator, is now part of the Peace with Russia advocacy group uh, known as the American Committee for East-West Accord. And that includes this guy, Stephen Cohen, who is, you know, I guess probably the best guy we got, um, who is a professor at uh, New York University in Princeton and is married to Katrina Vanden Heuvel, uh, editor of The Nation. Former Senator Bill Bradley, who's a terrible person, but apparently he's good on Russia, so that's good. Jack Matlock, who was the second-to-last ambassador to the USSR, who's been on the show and talked about the uh, Republicans' promise to the Russians to not expand eastward, uh, etc. And Chuck Hagel, oh, and uh, Gilbert Doctorow, who we've been running his essays at the National Interest because they've been pretty damn good. We've been running them at antiwar.com. And so anyway, I don't know about the rest of the people there. But um, so Chuck Hagel joining this, I think, is I don't know, man. He's not much of an activist, but it's nice to have his name on this. uh, Pushing to short circuit any real Cold War with Russia, which we're not really at yet. Not like the old days. And we don't have to be. So good for him and good for us that he's done this. That's uh, eastwestaccord.com. Superior blends of premium coffee, roasted fresh in Zionsville, Indiana. Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur. Scott Horton Show listeners, visit darrenscoffee.com and use the coupon code SCOTT at checkout for free shipping. darrenscoffee.com Because everyone deserves to drink great coffee. I'm Scott. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Yeah, uh, I hope all that was clear, man, about the central banking. You see, a bank can only create so much money out of nothing and make bad bets on companies that are bad bets before they go out of business. With the central bank there saying, no, go ahead, we got you. Then they can create more and more and more and more money until they build up a giant bubble of fake prosperity. That then leads to the very real crashes that disrupt and destroy everything. And then turn everybody who doesn't understand what the hell is happening to them against themselves and each other. And it sucks. And if it wasn't for the world empire mass murdering people all day, this would be alone the cause of our time abolishing the central bank. And you know... If you read uh, William Grider's book, Secrets of the Temple, which is sort of the Washington Post version of 
what's really wrong with the Fed. So it's laughable in a lot of ways, as you could imagine. But one of the things they talk about in there is that the Fed keeps track of all the suicide statistics, the marriage statistics, the foster st- uh, children's statistics, the bankruptcies, obviously, but but the effect of the bankruptcies on the humans, they do keep track of that. They know how much pain they cause. Now, in the book, it's all portrayed as, yes, because of the brutality of high interest rates, that one time they finally didn't allow a recession. They forced a recession after a decade of stagflation. Inflation with no bubble, just inflation across the board. And they finally had to destroy that. And in order to do that, they cranked the interest rates way, way, way up in the early 80s. And it's in that context they talk about it. But same difference. High interest rates, yeah, that hurts like hell. But look at the epidemic of suicides uh, after 2008. And the highest part of it was in 2009 and 10. And a lot of them, you know, if you're a news consumer like me, man kills family, self. You know, he can't see any way out for himself. He's going to be damned if he's going to leave them without him to what? Some other man or something like that? So in his despair, he murders his own kids and his own wife and his own self. If you read the AP, you know that it's true. It's just this is what happens when the Federal Reserve... When the U.S. national government, and I know everybody says the Federal Reserve is private. Well, yeah, sort of, kind of. It's a cartel, but don't kid yourself. It's the national government. It has the police power of the national government to have its way. Its board is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. It is a government organization. The banks don't have a choice but to participate in the system if they didn't want to. So I'm not saying take the blame away from the banks. It's their half the scam. But the problem, as always, is force. Let a bank inflate and let it go bankrupt. Only a government can inflate an entire economy. And crash it and then do it again and again and again. It's insane. But anyway, so I hope you hate it and I hope you'll go read uh, Mises about it. The theory of money and credit, that was his thing. Maybe a little high-minded. I asked uh, Mark there, he said, read, What has government done to our money? Absolutely. A great one by Murray Rothbard. Also, The Case Against the Fed is a great one. I think that one has a little bit more of the politics in it. If you're kind of interested in the story of... You know, the Jekyll Island type foundations of the thing and all of that. The case against the Fed. And in America's Great Depression. And you know what? I think this is probably the easiest one. Read the chapter on the boom and bust cycle. I don't know what chapter it is, but you can find it out easy enough. And you can read it for free online or listen to it for free online at YouTube or at Mises.org. But get the chapter on the boom and the bust from Murray Rothbard's book, For a New Liberty. Which is his... You know, it's the Libertarian Manifesto from 1978, I think it is, 79, something. Uh, maybe 77. Whatever. Anyway, right around then. And anyway, the chapter on central banking in there is great. The chapter on, you know, this is what creates the 
the artificial booms and the very real busts. If this is new to you, sorry for those of you who this is not new to you. I know I'm boring you to tears here, and you think you could say it better than me probably, and you're probably right. But for those of you who are new to this, oh, and here's something I should say too. Here's something I should have said at the beginning. You don't have to be a libertarian. You don't have to agree with me about anything else. You could even be bad on wars. You could be absolutely horrible on the regulatory state and the welfare state and the state. The police state and the homeland security state and the national security state and the evil empire. It doesn't matter. Whatever you're bad on, I don't even care. It's still true that central banking, that fractional reserve banking backed by a government central bank with police power is the cause of our economic dislocations. Aside, even if we didn't have the military-industrial complex diverting trillions of dollars to worthless junk and mass murder, you still got the boom and the bust, and it's all because of the government. So, you just got to admit it. Even if you're a commie, even if you're a conservative of whatever description, you got to admit that the Austrian school libertarians are the ones who are right about what causes the boom and the bust. It's just as true as could be. It's as true as it's true that South by Southwest of 1999 was populated with brand new millionaires by the thousands talking about how their website was going to be the website for music in the new century. And they all had expense accounts in the zillions. I was a cab driver. They had expense accounts in the zillions. Every single blowhard from L.A. in my cab. Oh, yeah. We got all this capitalization. And when people go online to get music, they're going to come and buy it from us. At our new music website we're making. Where were they getting all that money from? From Alan Greenspan. He was handing it to them and saying, here, invest in lousy nonsense. In, in ridiculous nonsense. And I made a lot of money driving a cab south by southwest that year. Especially Thursday night that week it rained. And I was just extorting the hell out of all them Californians too. Yeah, you can get a ride for a hundred bucks. <laughs> hey, what the hell, man? It was inflationary times. It was bubble activity. All right. Uh, so I mentioned the Mosul Dam thing. Hey, that's a real problem. Can you imagine as many people as George Bush killed in eight, ten years? The Mosul Dam could kill in a day or two if that thing breaks. And it's looking like it's going to break. And maybe a little bit of that is hyperbole, but yeah, not so much. If they can't open the gates and let a little bit of water out, and it's built on water-soluble gypsum, great <laughs> well usually we fill all of the uh, eroded gypsum uh, pockets with concrete we suck all the water out and fill it with concrete you know but of course that hasn't happened since the fall of Mosul and that's been a year and a half now and it was barely getting done before that and the dam's in trouble and here comes the snow melt in March and April and May if it lasts till May. And they can't open the damn gate. And they say they can't open one without opening both. And one of them is jammed. I don't know how badly jammed. But apparently they cannot get a guy to fix the damn jam in the dam. So. 
had to mention that again because that just kills me, you know, to think that that could really happen. An entire Iraq War II worth of casualties could happen over something as stupid as uh, a mechanical difficulty like that that no one can get straight because they're too busy murdering each other. All right, anyway, Yemen, Nigeria, uh, oh, and BDS stuff, too, in a minute. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, man, I'm Scott. This is my show, The Scott Horton Show. <clears throat> Why is this thing so quiet today? Yeah, man, so uh, wrapping up the show for you today. Get to some more bad news for you here. First of all, almost 4,000 people killed in the Iraq War in February as tallied up by Margaret Griffiths at antiwar.com slash updates. At least 3,841 people were killed and 1,606 were wounded across Iraq during February. So that's equivalent to the very worst years of Iraq War II in 2006 and seven especially during the surge there, 3,000 a month, 4,000 a month. And that's not everybody dying. That's just all the people killed and, you know, actual sectarian fighting. But the actual casualties, of course, extend far beyond that. And then this one, they're trying to make a PR thing out of this. I don't mean to uh, play into that, but it's an important note that they're bragging about using Delta Force in northern Iraq. They say they captured an ISIS suspect, an expeditionary targeting force. What a, what a strange thing for them to break with the custom of not talking about what Delta Force is doing. Seems kind of a strange thing to talk about, but they wanted to brag about it. But my point is that, yeah, the American reinvasion of Iraq for Iraq War Three is on. I hope you didn't let them fool you. Um, and then here's one more from Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr protest corruption in Baghdad. And it's a Reuters photograph, and holy crap. Muqtada al-Sadr says, hey, you know, I have something I want to get off my chest, guys. And a sea of humans come outside and say, yes, what is it? It's just incredible. Um... The partisan Kurdish news agency Rudal claimed up to a million. However, that was probably an exaggeration they're saying here. Okay. And then um, what he's saying is that uh, he wants reform in the Baghdad government. 
and he really means it. He's pissed off at a body. Um, he said he wanted all of the Shiite militias, including his own, the Mahdi army, to be incorporated into the Iraqi army. Enough of that kind of independence. He wants Iraqi nationalism. And too late. I don't know, man. I guess it it's possible one day he'll be the um, the Ayatollah of Iraqi Shiistan. If he wants it, I think he could have it. But um, I think his old goal from 2004 and five to try to forge an alliance with the Sunnis, a nationalist alliance against uh, foreign intervention, those days are over, man, with or without the Islamic State. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But Sadr was always, of all the Shiite leaders, and he was part of the United Iraqi Alliance with the more Iranian and American-backed forces, um, but his position always was to limit American and Iranian influence and the sectarian wishes of his partners in the United Iraqi Alliance in favor of Iraqi nationalism, including Sunni Arabs and Kurds, which the Serds are uh, Sunnis too, but they're not Arabs, so they're distinguished differently. But anyway, um, and so, but anyway, you know, America destroyed all that with its occupation and its, uh, war on behalf of the Shiite militias like the Bada Brigade and their political leadership. Anyway, yeah, let's see what happens there. It's interesting to see, you know, I don't know if anything I said at all just now made any sense to anybody but me here today, but uh, not calling you stupid, just, you know, maybe ignorant and also maybe I don't make much sense. But... um it's interesting to me to try to figure out what's going on in internal politics on the Shiite side. I wish Bob Dreyfus was still around. He was great at that stuff. I mean, he's still around, but he doesn't write anymore. Um, citing desertions, Afghan troops withdraw from checkpoints, and then the partner to that is Afghan policeman kills at least four colleagues at a checkpoint. Eleven others who are manning checkpoints still missing. Um... That was from yesterday. Uh, both of those are from yesterday at antiwar.com, news.antiwar.com. Insider attack. You know, tomorrow's spotlight, probably, on antiwar.com is going to be this guy saying, get the hell out of Afghanistan. He's a former diplomat of some kind, I forget. Former State Department weenie or something. But he makes a great case. For get the hell out of Afghanistan before your fall of Saigon moment, because it's coming. And we don't need to be there and get the hell out of there. And uh, that'll be the spotlight article tomorrow on antiwar.com. I'll try to get the guy on the horn to talk about it. Um, but yeah, man, he's right. Anyway, Saudi warplanes attack Yemen market, killing 40, 45 civilians. Double back to attack rescue workers. That's Obama, terrorist style, the double tap. Like Eric Rudolph, the Olympic Park and uh, abortion clinic bomber. That's how he did the abortion clinics a couple of times. Set off a second bomb to kill the firefighters and the e and the EMTs who show up to try to help. Huh? That's what o how Obama does the Predator and Reaper drone strikes too. 
Uh, and that leads me to mention this piece, which I think we're running on antiwar.com today, or we will be soon. It's by Caesar Chalela, and he's a doctor, I think. And he says, in Yemen, a humanitarian pause is urgently needed, as we're now just shy of a year of American and Saudi war against Yemen. Here's something nobody's talking about. Well, once it comes to Trump versus Hillary, I'm sure he's going to destroy her with it. You know what she did in Yemen? Yeah, she overthrew the government over there, and it led directly to a giant, massive war. Millions of people are starving because of what she did. She threw an election, get this, everybody, with one guy on the ballot. Ha, ha, ha. Fact check that, PolitiFact, or whatever the crap. I mean, assuming anyone working for him knows anything about what's going on over there. But nobody's going to say it before then. Maybe not even then. But to think, you know, America right now, and Obama is going to have the reputation in history, you can already tell, as being less worse than Bush and that kind of deal. But just think about what he's done with his wars in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia. You know, I just rattle them off because I'm going around the map in my head, you know. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Syria. But we're talking about, I mean, in just raw casualties, you have those numbers in obviously the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. But all the other effects of it, too. All the, you know, refugee crisis and all the, you know, radicalization and commitment to various sub-state jihadi armies around the region. You know, kicking Libya over and spreading the war down into Mali and now into Niger and Chad and Nigeria, Cameroon. Oh, man. Anyway. Oh, I forgot to mention before that uh, Mohammed Sahimi is going to be on the show tomorrow to talk about the results of the Iranian elections. Uh, which, as he said before on the show, and he says is in, in his brand new article, are, they're not democratic elections, but they are meaningful and the least worst one in that one. Oh, you know, I didn't finish my point about Yemen, about the USA. After all this, Obama with his reputation of of being less worse. I wanted to go back to Yemen, picking on the weakest country in the Middle East. You know, Iraq, at least at one time before Bill Clinton and George Bush Sr. had strangled it to death, had been, uh, you know, up there with Egypt in terms of standard of living. But uh, Yemen, this is the weakest, one of the oldest civilizations on the planet, by the way. Continuous civilizations on the planet. Hide behind them walled cities of theirs as they have for thousands of years. And they're the weakest and poorest nation in the Middle East. And America, don't even let them call it a Saudi war. It's a USA war this whole time for a year straight against these helpless people. It's sickening. And anyway, oh, and they're spreading the drone war down in Nigeria too. Out of time to talk about that. But we'll see you guys tomorrow. Thanks.